0: Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better, Tim. How are you today? I'm truly wonderful, and we have on one of our friends, Maggie Freeling, from the disappearance of Maura Murray, the Oxygen program that we were also in, of course, with former U.S. Marshal Art Roderick and the Murray family. Um, But that is not what we're talking about here today, Lance, is it?
1: That is correct. Her new project is called Unjust and Unsolved. It is a podcast that is new. It's available now. It's from the Obsessed Network, and you know the Obsessed Network. That is uh, from Patrick Hines, Jillian Pensavale. Uh, They do True Crime Obsessed, and with Ellen Marsh, Patrick does Obsessed with Disappeared, and Maggie is their first podcast outside of the Obsessed theme that is on their network, and this one deals with criminals who are in prison, innocent, and are looking for justice.
0: Yeah, that's right. The Innocence Project estimates that there are over 20,000 innocent people currently locked away in U.S. prisons, and these cases remain unsolved. And uh, so Maggie Freeling does a, a weekly show, and I can't wait to start listening to it. And she tells us all about it.
1: And we know Maggie will dig deep into these cases that are important to her. She's a amazing advocate for the wrongfully convicted for social justice just in general. So you know that she'll bring a passion with this. Uh, yeah, me too. I can't wait to listen to the show. And this is a really fun interview as well.
0: Okay, so check it out. Subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app. There's a link in the show notes. And also check out the site, Unjust and Unsolved. So hope you enjoy this with Maggie Freeling. Thanks a lot for listening. Welcome back to the podcast, good friend Maggie Freeling. Hello.
1: Hello, and thank you for taking time out of your morning and your busy schedule to join us again. Um, always welcome on the show, as we say, open door policy for uh, yourself. And um, you, you have big news. We're not talking uh, big more Murray news. We're talking big personal news for you. And uh, we're thrilled that you decided to join us. On this show to uh, talk about your new project,
2: I'm super excited. Um, you know, we've oh my gosh, we've known each other for so long now—like four years, maybe. We've probably oh, known each yes. other like, like four, four or five years, years at yeah. this point. Yeah, and we've all been working together, so this is kind of weird to be doing something really separate of you guys. <laughs> so it feels nice to be back on the podcast.
0: Good. Well, we love having you. And uh, we're here to support whatever you're doing. So uh, yeah, let let you know. I, as much as we could talk for uh, twenty minutes about Maura Murray, um, at least <laughs> twenty hours about Maura Murray. Um, please tell us about your new podcast, Unjust and Unsolved.
2: Yeah. So this was an idea I had um, maybe about a year ago. Patrick and I started working on this idea. You know, we became friends. I think you guys remember that meeting at CrimeCon. It was a really historic meeting for my life. Um, I didn't want to say hi to Patrick because I knew he was such a fangirl of me and I thought he was going to choke on his eggs. So he almost did. He's screeching hello at CrimeCon and then we've been friends ever since. Um, So yeah, he kind of came to me and said, you know, I'm starting this network. I would love to have a podcast with you on it about a year ago. Um, And he said, what do you want to do? and i have another podcast coming out this fall um which i can't talk about yet but uh, not related to the obsessed network or anything like that but you know i'm working on a podcast about somebody who spent their life in prison expected to die in prison and was suddenly released and um So I got really involved in this criminal justice system, and he, in all my meetings with him, you know, he often talked about the guys he would meet on the inside that were innocent. You know, he wasn't innocent of his crime, and he made that very clear, but he would tell me about these guys that he truly believed, like, they didn't commit this crime, and it just got me thinking, you know, there are so many people out there like that, and I started searching podcasts about wrongful convictions, and there are none. That do what we're doing. There's, you know, Bob Ruff, Truth and, Truth and Justice, who spends an entire season investigating a case, which is amazing and beyond helpful. But there were none that really just get the voices out of people still incarcerated each episode. A lot of them focus on people who are already out, because as I've discovered, it's quite difficult to make a podcast with people who are currently incarcerated. So I just thought, you know, this is what I want to do. And I started interviewing people. I sent out letters. Um, People immediately responded and Patrick loved it. Um, So that's, that's where we're at. And I'm really, really happy that he's given me this platform to be me and do what I want to do.
1: And you're, you're talking about the, the great Patrick Hines from True Crime Obsessed and Obsessed with Disappeared. Uh, he does True Crime Obsessed with Jillian Pensavale and Ellen Marsh is his partner on uh, Obsessed with Disappeared. So they he has formed um, the, the Obsessed Network. And I think you are the first I think Unjust and Unsolved is the first uh, release from the Obsessed Network that isn't directly related to uh, something Patrick is on. So that's kind of an honor right there. Um, and also that's really fascinating that you were working on a separate project, which, which kind of gave birth to this project because one thing led to numerous, uh, topics, which is, which is pretty impressive that it blossomed into this. So yeah, well done there.
2: It is, you know, when I look back at like my career and things that I've wanted to do, I truly did not ever expect I would be so invested in wrongful convictions, Um, Not that I never cared about it. It was just, you know, I've always worked particularly, you know, with women and uh, rape and domestic assault survivors. I'd always thought it would go in some kind of direction like that. Um, And, you know, I never expected to be visiting prisons. And, you know, I did a lot of work inside um, immigration detention facilities. So I thought maybe, you know, I had a whole... Um, hour-long special last year on uh, sexual assault inside a specific detention center in Texas. You know, I thought it would go somewhere like that. And I didn't expect to be here, but I'm really happy I'm here. And, you know, I think it's really important to give these people voices. I mean, every single one of them, you know, I say at the intro of my podcast, I sent 20 letters and every single person responded, you know, and it was just amazing to hear their stories.
0: Wow. I can't wait. So how many episodes each, each case, I guess, or is that, does that differ?
2: Nope. So each one's going to be, it's one episode, each one's going to be about an hour long. And so that's kind of what I was saying. Like, you know, the work i have Bob and I have worked together on one of these cases, or I had him on my podcast. So look forward to that. Um, but you know, the work he does is like a dream. I would love to be able to do one case a season and really dive in deep. Um, but right now, you know, just trying to get the word out about all these people. We don't really have the bandwidth to do that. That really takes a team. And Bob has an amazing team. But launching this podcast, we figured, you know what, let's do something like what you guys do or Gen Y does or True Crime Garage. You know, it's one, one episode per case. And... I think that's a good format right now. I know that, you know, a couple of these are really, really intricate and in depth and I've gotten really invested in their cases. And I'm, I'm trying to, I've spoken to a lot of producers, TV producers, trying to get them to take on some of these bigger ones that really require a huge deep dive. Some of these people who don't currently have an investigator or a lawyer or their case, you know, they've lost all their appeals and they're really just, as they have said to me, their case is quote dead in the water. So those are the ones that I really wish could have more time right now. That's just not the format, but maybe, you know, a season two, maybe we'll do that. Um, so yeah, that's what we're looking at. It's a, it's an hour each episode and it's me speaking with the person who is incarcerated. Um, the plan was to go and visit everybody, but because of COVID, um, that's not possible. The prisons are a real mess right now. Um, As they should, no one should be visiting them because, you know, if one person gets it in there, it's an entire outbreak and talking to some of these people, it's really, really scary. One of them actually had COVID. Luckily, he's on the younger side. Um, But yeah, so right now it's just phone calls. um, And that's how it's going to be.
1: So you mentioned um, maybe in subsequent seasons, you would focus more on uh, a particular case, but is that the uh, structure you'll, you'll have um, X amount of episodes per season uh, and how many episodes will that be? 20. Oh, so you're doing all 20 in one season. Gotcha. Cool.
2: We have 20 in this first season that runs through about February, I think is where the season ends in, in February. And so that's 20 different cases that I'm covering. Um, and it's a lot because I don't just, you know, Wikipedia it and tell the story. I'm really, you know, I'm speaking to lawyers I'm speaking to loved ones. I'm reading case files. I'm speaking to the person themselves who is incarcerated. Um, there's a lot that goes into each episode, which I think, you know, with the format we didn't, Patrick and I, you know, it was interesting how this was conceived because, I come from a journalism background, so for me, it's those things are necessary. I could never imagine just reading a Wikipedia and a couple articles and writing, you know, doing an episode about something. Um,
0: So you're saying you don't just read Wikipedia and and read that on the show? Okay.
2: No. I do multiple interviews. I have every single case file um, as many as I can get. You know, the good thing about these wrongful conviction cases is these people do want their stories heard. They do want these files read. They want the corruption and misconduct exposed. So luckily, you know, transcripts, everything is pretty much online. And I did find that also with, um, with Bob's episode that he did with one of the people I cover too, you know, he also puts all the case files online. So a lot of this information is out there um, and I go through it all um, to tell each story and uh, make sure it's it's told right. And we brought in um, to make sure to do that. We brought in Amber Hunt from Accused, who is absolutely fantastic. She is the editor for this. So me and Amber uh, are really just going in deep on these things.
1: Was it a hard sell to... Um... Talk to Patrick and have him, uh, you know, agree to put this on the network as like the first show, because I know he came to you and we all know that he's got a comedy background and a theater background. Was he expecting you to bring something a little lighter? Cause it sounds like important and it sounds really, um, you know, it's a heavy topic.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think he, I think he did. And then when you realize who I am, I'm, I'm pretty uh, serious. <laughs> I don't really know. You, what,
1: you weren't going to be doing shtick?
2: <laughs> no. I don't think I would ever be able to do that. We actually tried it. So we tried it. The first pilot we made of this, it was. It was going to be me and Patrick, and it's me storytelling to him, and then him kind of asking the questions about what's going on. We tried it. We listened to it. We had a few people listen to it, and we just all, all unanimously were like, this is – not the format. This is absolutely not the format. Like it it went through a couple of vision like versions. Patrick was like, uh oh, maybe cut me talking about how hot the lawyer is. And I'm like, yeah, that seems inappropriate. Let's cut that. Ooh, maybe cut me doing this. That seems inappropriate too. It basically just cuts down to Patrick being inappropriate all the time. Um and then by the time we cut everything he wanted, it was like really just me left and we were just like, right, I guess we're just I'm going solo on this one. So that's that's how it happens.
1: That's hilarious. So the, the final iteration was all pared down to like twenty-two minutes of of you with just these sort of empty comments that had no response to them.
2: <laughs> exactly. And and honestly, it's Patrick's so busy, like you mentioned, he has multiple shows. So to try and do the two of us on a show would also just be really difficult between our schedules. So this works out really well. Um I'm really, really happy with the format. I'm happy that you know, we originally conceived it being a little more storytelling and less journalism, but I think I got what I wanted and got a little more journalism than storytelling. So I'm I'm happy with that.
0: Great. And which episode is uh, the wrongful conviction of John Juca?
2: Yeah, I'm gonna do that. I I'm Go. I really wanna do that. So I'll definitely We, we were texting about, about it. That. Sorry. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sorry, I, do I was that. just kinda joking. Yeah.
2: No, I really I really want to um, good. I, one of my now friends, I've become friends with one of these men on the inside. Um, and I do, you know, do full disclosures where, you know, I've worked at in public radio and been like a really, you know, journalists don't become friends with their sources, but I, you know, these are humans. I consider them more than sources. They, a lot of them have become friends of mine now. Um, and one of them, Johnny Drain Velasquez, who you've seen in the trailer, we've become friends and he actually um, is friends with John Juca's mom. Um, and I asked him about John. And- Great you know, JJ, JJ knows everybody in the wrongful conviction world, especially if they're in New York, he's helped free three guys in New York from the inside. Um, so he knows John's case really well.
0: Oh, that's great. Okay. Great to hear. Yeah. I know we had kind of texted about it, about, uh, that case, but, um, but yeah, we, we hadn't exactly, uh, connected, um, to hear that. So that's great. Wonderful.
2: Yeah. It's an interesting one. I, you know, I've heard your episodes, but I don't know too much about it. So, um, I definitely want to look into it more and we'll, we'll talk about it.
0: I was just going to say we can, um, I, we just heard from his lawyer recently, um, you know, who was finally willing to, uh, come on the show. Um, so that would be great yeah, to put you in amazing. touch with him too.
1: Uh, John's case is really, um, frustrating. Like you, you read all the details and you hear from his mom and you hear from his lawyer and you look at how it all played out in the court system. And a lot of it was, uh, a lot of, a lot of backdoor like dealings and a, you know, very shady stuff. Um, what was some of the cases that you looked at that, that you like really got frustrated by? Cause John Juca's case like legitimately frustrates me. It it gets me angry when I talk, when, when we talk to Doreen, his mom, uh, that must've happened over and over for you. If you had 20 of these.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, there are ones, you know, one that I'm doing right now, I have the interview tomorrow. Um, this guy's alibi is beyond solid. um There are like photos of him at this memorial for his aunt when this crime took place, yet somehow he still winds up being incarcerated i mean those it's the solid alibi another one who i i've I've really gotten close with this person, David Thorne he also had a completely solid alibi for the murder of his ex-girlfriend and mother of his kid. And so because he had an alibi and they were so dead set on making it him, they decided to say he had a co-conspirator. Um, and so his case is just really, really beyond frustrating because, you know, the co-conspirator, the quote co-conspirator, um, You know has recanted and said he had nothing to do with it it was a really sad um kind of brendan dassey moment where they find this kid who you know has a a tough life lower iq learning disabilities and the police pin this on him and say if you don't tell us david sent you to kill this person you know x y and z um so the case is really difficult because even with dna testing to show that the co-conspirator was not at the crime scene it still doesn't exonerate David because he wouldn't have been there anyway. You know what I'm saying? It's just very frustrating um, with that case, the the way they did it. And there were so many good suspects, which we talk about in the episode. There's so many good suspects who didn't have alibis, who were seen at the house, but for some reason, they were hell-bent on making it the ex-boyfriend with the alibi.
1: And you find that a lot with some of these cases that once the decision is made to incarcerate, it's like, we're not going back on this because we're right.
2: It never is. There's the the first case we do. A cop actually found out that this guy was innocent. And even the cop was going to the prosecutor saying this guy is innocent and they still stood by their conviction. They always, almost always it is so rare for them to not stand by the conviction, even if they they weren't involved at that point, even if it was 40 years ago. Um, the office is just always, it's politics. They stand by these convictions.
0: Yeah, what is what is that? Because I know we've kind of tried to figure that out with John's case, and we're like, oh, maybe maybe they're worried about getting sued and personally, and maybe the state is that
2: They're going to get sued anyway. I mean, if you just right. saw with Ronnie Long, he's my first case, um, you know... I've been speaking with Ronnie for months now. He was just released and he was released Friday Thursday. He was released Thursday, Um, 44 years in prison. And the prosecutor in North Carolina and the governor stood by his conviction for 44 years. And then when the courts finally ruled to release him, they have no comment. They don't say anything, you know, and now they're, I mean, I would imagine he's going to sue.
1: I think the the tragedy of the whole thing is that it really might just be a numbers thing. They don't want these numbers, these reversal numbers on their record, that there's a reason why they need to have a perfect record or a close to perfect record of conviction. And it's really horrible to think that because it's such a selfish, simple reason. You, You want
0: it to be something deeper. Well, money, too, right? It has to be some of that, yeah.
2: I mean, yeah. it costs them money to fight these things, too. It costs them money oh, yeah. to fight it. It costs them a ton of money to keep this person incarcerated. And that's the saddest thing. I, think, I mean, I think you are onto something where it's like they don't want them to sue. It's like, yeah, it's very hard to get out for a wrongful conviction. So I think they're taking the chance on, well, we could just keep them in and they won't sue. I don't know how you sleep at night. I don't know how you are um, existing with any kind of conscience to keep an innocent person with Clear evidence in, in prison. Um, and they bank on, you know, they block DNA testing. In Ronnie's case, they've been blocking the DNA testing because they know it's going to show he was innocent, you know?
0: Oh, my God.
2: It, it happens all the time. I mean, they're always blocking DNA testing. That's what it is with David. They're trying to block DNA testing. Um,
0: is that the most corrupt display that you've witnessed in doing this?
2: No. I mean, I've, I've witnessed... Um, I mean, so specifically with the New York case, JJ, I mean, the prosecutor, uh, another uh, Johnny and Capier was the same prosecutor, Eugene Hurley. He was released uh, a few years ago for a wrongful conviction. I mean, they plant evidence, they make up, um, I I believe in JJ's case, they made up a, um, maybe it wasn't JJ's case, but I've seen other prosecutors make up police reports saying like, this is what this person said about you. So you know, this is what has this is what happens. Like they they make up evidence, and that's happened in two of these cases that I've covered.
1: That's going to be infuriating to you to 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 actually firsthand witness that to to see that go down. Um, as a journalist, as an investigative journalist,
2: it's infuriating, and it's it makes you feel hopeless. We should be holding these people accountable, and you know that's part of what I want to. Do is I want people to hear these episodes. I want to lay out as much evidence as possible. And then I want you, the listener, to take action. Um, I give calls to action at the end. Write this person. Do this. I know there's people listening who have more power than myself to hold these people accountable. Um, and that's really what I want to do. I think that's the only way things will change, as we've seen recently with this whole police brutality movement.
1: Yeah. So, if you're asking people a call to action, you're you're asking people to write to um, to whom? To their
2: uh... the attorney general. Oftentimes, yeah. it's the governor, um, the prosecutor's office. The uh, a lot of states have um, or cities have uh, conviction integrity units. Um, it could be any one of or all of or sign a change.org petition. You know, the smallest things you could do, and I think that's what we saw in Ronnie's case, you know, 44 years in prison, he's 64 now. Uh, And you'll hear the episode. I don't want to give it all away, but he started getting a lot of attention and the more attention these cases get, the more chance there, there is, you know, we saw with making a murderer season two, Kathleen Zellner has the case. Um, The attention is so, so, so important. And that's why I ask everybody to like and share. I, I don't care. I, it's not about me getting up the charts. It's about these stories getting up the charts. The more people that hear them, the more action will be taken and the more politicians will pay attention.
0: We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. I think your show comes
1: along at a pretty appropriate time because we're seeing a lot of protesting and a lot of debating and really a lot of polarization, but, uh, it's very reminiscent of the, of the mid-60s, mid to late 60s as well. Uh, and, but there's this uh, group of people that will also say, like, well, why would I do that? Why would I call somebody? Nothing's going to change. Nothing ever changes. Why would I call somebody? Why would I write the attorney general? Um, because nothing changes. Uh, and I think that's why these movements kind of stall is because there'll be some small victories and then people will, will rest on, on that. And, and it, it, uh, you know, the, the fight has to keep going even even harder when these small victories happen. Do you see that at all with the show or, or am I just thinking too, too uh too big, uh, you know, because I, I, I see that with this show. I, I see a lot of change happening with this show because there is a big reach there that, that you have. And, and through the Obsessed Network, I think there can be a lot of voices that listen, a lot of voices that that will will speak out because of hearing a certain episode.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what we want. And that's why I'm just so grateful to Patrick again, um, you know, for giving me the opportunity to do what I want and all I've ever wanted to do. The reason I became a journalist is to help people and to give people voices who don't have voices. Um, You know, some of the most silenced people in this country are prisoners. I mean, they, they have no voice. And I think it's just so important to hear them tell their own stories and tell it in a way that, you know, because of Patrick's guidance, we've made it fun. It's fun to listen to. And I think that's also a problem with some of these shows that, you know, are telling really, really important stories. They just don't know how to do it in an engaging way, which is um, a bummer. And so I think, you know, we, we have this opportunity, this platform all of these amazing people, Amber, Patrick, you know, to make these stories as digestible and, um, spreadable as possible.
1: Yeah. Cause it, it does, um, create like the impression that it's going to be super heavy, but you need to make it consumable so people can relate to, uh, your subject can relate to the person that you're, you're speaking about and speaking with, um, what what's your feelings on the whole? Uh, I guess law and order system, the whole prison system, like like we like put them away and forget about them. Um, um, it's
2: terrible, and we and we know how much it costs yeah. us as taxpayers to incarcerate one person a year. I don't want to say any numbers right now. I mean, we could do a quick Google, but like, I mean, it is. Thousands and thousands over the course of someone's lifetime. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars to keep these people incarcerated. And this is the point that I also want to make with the show. Not only has someone's life, their family's life, their children's life, I mean, these are fathers, mothers, I speak to women wrongfully incarcerated, um, caretakers for people, sold caretakers. Not only have their lives been stolen, there is a criminal still out there doing more crimes. And that is truly the most heinous thing about this. While you're locking up an innocent person, the actual criminal is committing more crimes.
1: So it's not really about uh, justice, right?
2: I mean, I don't... I. I don't know what justice looks like for somebody who's lost a majority of their life in prison, prison. And we've heard with Ronnie's episode, you'll hear, you put a kid, a 20 year old who has, you know, an innocent 20 year old kid in prison, a place where you have to physically fight and be tough to survive. We've all heard stories of what happens in prison. That is true. So you take somebody who was nonviolent and put them in a violent environment where they have to fight for their lives. You are now making a person exactly who they weren't. Like I talked to Ronnie about this. I mean this man had to literally fight people. I looked at his infraction sheet. Like it's massive. And if you look at that without context, you know it's like whatever this is a violent guy he's not he's fighting for his life inside and so it's like this this double edged sword you know where you know he's fighting for his life and then when you go up for parole it's like oh well you have all these infractions we're not going to parole you out you're violent you just made this person like that i mean it's just it's so disgusting what the system and these reckless law enforcement agencies do
1: what what's your thoughts on the uh, canadian system because i think it's 25 years as the maximum sentence so life sentence is defined in canada as 25 years do you think there's any value to that
2: i do um and i think you know i think a lot of these problems and this is what i look at in my other podcast that's coming out is you know back in the 80s and the 90s when we had this whole tough on crime era, we created mandatory minimums, each state. And, you know, that's what happened with Ronnie, who I'm talking about my first episode. His mandatory minimum for the alleged rape was a life sentence. He got two life sentences as a 20 year old child, a black man in segregated North Carolina two life sentences for rape. I, I, there are no words for that. I mean, besides him being innocent, that's just saying that a kid, you're 20 years old, we know that male brains at least don't fully develop until around 26.
1: 50, 40 something.
2: <laughs> I mean, you're just saying a, a child is irredeemable. Just this this whole notion that somebody commits a crime and they are irredeemable, I think is so wrong because we know that's wrong. You know, these, I I mean, you see people go in and they turn their lives around, but to tell them like you have no chance because this happened, I mean, especially with kids and a lot of these wrongful convictions that I cover, they, they were incarcerated at, you know, Jermaine was 19, Ronnie was 20, uh, David was 26. I mean, just young people who had their lives stolen and are told, you're irredeemable. And they didn't even do anything, but I'm just saying, you know, you're know, you irredeemable. You have no chance on the outside world. We're going to lock you up and throw away the key. We know that's just not, it's not true. People are so capable of change.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um right. Is there like a consistent spectrum that you that you see when you're talking to these individuals uh from when they were convicted or when they were I guess um arrested to uh when they're released? Like do they go through this process of of being angry and then accepting it and and they come out like much calmer or do they come out angry or is it a a variation of of everything?
2: So so because my show focuses on people that are currently locked up I don't um I know there's a couple other podcasts out there that talk to people about what what had happened and now they're out I don't have that knowledge of of knowing what they're like when they're out um because no one I've covered yet has gotten out besides Ronnie and he got out Thursday so I'm speaking with him this week um I see I I see cases that it just runs the gamut between and again every state is different some states lifers can't take classes um some states they can so you know jj in sing sing in new york he's doing tedx talks he's you know he's teaching classes remotely um you know he's just become this amazing uh crusader for justice and he's an amazing citizen um but then you know you see these these and i'm not saying the new york system is great by any means so in some states, you know, they lifers can't take classes. And a lot of these people I speak to are in there for rape and murder, which would in a lot of cases give you a life sentence. They're stuck playing handball and just working, gen doing janitorial work. That is their life now. Um, because our system says when you get a life sentence or never getting out, why should we take the time and money to give you a a better to better yourself while inside, and so that's really sad. Those are the sad cases where if those people do get out, they're really starting where they left off. A 20 year old kid with nothing for 44 years is now 64 and starting there. You know, it's, re- it's just devastating.
0: Does this work inspire you?
2: It does, and the people that inspire me are the ones who are incarcerated and have not given up. And, and the advocates that I talk to, these people who don't get paid to do this work, who build websites for these folks, who help with letter writing campaigns. I mean, I'm in touch with all these advocates and the wrongful conviction community is really beautiful. I mean, there's a few people I speak with who help out you know, from JJ's case to David Thorne's case. One is in New York and one is in Ohio. And these advocates from all around the country just help all these different people. And it's a really wonderful community. And that's, that's what's inspiring to me.
1: Are you planning on having Art Roderick on the show and uh, revisiting every one of his cases and, and really sticking it to him and saying, uh, you these
2: this guy's innocent, Art. I don't know. what I don't think Art... I mean, Art... I don't think was in charge of really locking anyone up like that. He did the fugitive tax, task force.
1: That's true. That's true. Well, you should have him on anyway and, and really hold his feet to the flames.
2: Yeah. I mean, of course I would. <laughs> there is a case that I'm looking at that did take place um, on the ca- somewhere around where he, where he lives on the Cape. And I think he's familiar with it. I asked him about it.
1: Oh, okay. So, joking aside, you—you've—he knows that you're doing this uh, show, and and have you, um, asked his advice for, for anything? Any sort of law enforcement insight?
2: Art and I talk every day. He knows. He knows what I'm doing. I know what he's doing. We, uh, <laughs> you know, he's very aware of this. Um, he's really, really excited. Um, I often ask his. You know, I, I, I ask this to me. I find more that I need prosecutorial advice. I need to know why some of these prosecutors do the things that they do. Um, You know, I think we've seen so much. We we know, you know, that people, no matter your position, um, you know, in in your job, no matter your job, if you're the good guy, you're a prosecutor or, you know, whoever, I think we know that everyone can be corrupt. And we're seeing that right now with the police brutality movement. We know that there are corrupt people in the system. Um, you know, the, the NYPD just released all of their data on complaints of officers. I mean, and it is just absolutely mind-blowing. And so... <laughs> I think, you know, when I start looking into some of these cases and I see time and time again, the same prosecutor with misconduct, complaints and violations and other people who were exonerated with the same prosecutor. I mean, I think that's the kind of advice I'm looking for more these days. Just like, help me understand what is going on when you are trying to quote, get justice. And, and I, I just, it blows my mind. Yeah. Um, I mean, a prosecutor can say they don't want to prosecute the case. They could always say that there's, it's never, it's not like there's someone telling you, you must prosecute this person. You could always say, well, I don't think we have enough evidence. We're not going to prosecute that one. I mean, I think I do, I really appreciate listening to the prosecutor's podcast because they give that insight, you know, where they just did the staircase and they're like, why the hell are they banking their case on this, uh, the fire poker that allegedly, you know, didn't exist and then it's found. You know, I I think it's really interesting to hear how the mind of a prosecutor works.
1: Yeah, seriously, because you have to... um... I guess, detach yourself from anything that is like, I'm going to sound really harsh here, but anything that is what we would consider compassion or or some sort of like emotion that is close to compassion. Because what you're doing is you're putting somebody away. You're putting them in a cage. And uh, yeah, I mean, it takes some resolve. It'd be really interesting to get into the psychology of that uh, and what it takes, um, especially when you know that they're innocent.
2: Right. And I mean, there, you know, I, yes, there are prosecutors who don't, you know, if we're talking back in the seventies or eighties, where a lot of these cases that I look into take place, actually, I think a a majority of them truly take place in the mid nineties. Um, but like, you know, that was pre DNA testing. So I give some of these prosecutors benefit of the doubt that they maybe didn't know a hundred percent. And, you know, I look into those. And then in these cases, we often find it was, there's this one crazy case where <laughs> the fucking cops planted the evidence. It, it's Ronnie's case and hid it from the prosecutor, the prosecutor in Ronnie's case actually had no idea there were brady violations and they were withholding evidence because the cops didn't even give it to the prosecutor. So in that case, the prosecutor thought that they were trying this guilty man and had no really truly had no idea what was going on. So like yes, that happens, you know, some of these cases the prosecutor really doesn't know that they're working with corrupt cops, you know what I mean? Like it's just it, some of these guys really do think they're doing the right thing and that's commendable. You know, yes, you're, uh, you're Jeffrey Dahmer. Let's definitely lock you away for life. Like that's, that's, that's good work. But at the same time, you know, it doesn't always work.
1: Right. Um, I read a terrifying article from the guardian. I don't know if you read it, uh, and, or if you heard about this, but the FBI has, uh, documented links that show, Uh, White supremacist groups have been infiltrating police um, and law enforcement have been infiltrating uh, police units for years, years and years. And that's terrifying to me. Have you did you hear this article from The Guardian?
2: Honestly, I didn't. But that negative percent surprises me at all. I actually just assumed that was fact. I think we can. uh, That does not surprise me in any sort of way.
1: Anybody that you've uh, spoken to in prison, do they ever have any claims like that? That that's something. I mean, I'm sure. That, I'm sure you've even said it during this conversation that uh, some of them might say like this was planted on me or I was framed. I was. It's you know, it's a conspiracy.
2: I haven't found anyone. So much of it is witness coercion, and whether it's uh. the prosecutor or the cops, but that's usually where it starts with a a bogus lineup. And someone just pointing randomly and then that you just, you're fucked from there. I mean, that's what I see a lot is, um, witness coercion and some of it, luckily, you know, in Charles Erickson's case, he's, he was the co-defendant of Ryan Ferguson, um, there's video of the police interrogating him. And it's, it's scary. If you have an officer screaming in your face, we know you did this, and you're a 19-year-old who happened to be partying that night, you're in a really tough spot when you don't really remember what happened. I mean, it's, it's scary what police and prosecutors can do and what they have the power to do. And I think that's another key thing I want people to understand from this is always have a lawyer. Don't talk to cops. Don't think, oh, I'm innocent. I'll just talk to them. That's how it starts. That's exactly how it starts.
1: Did you uh, see any firsthand, um, I guess, racial bias?
2: Always. Almost. So, I mean, Ronnie's is just so obvious because Ronnie, it was 1976, North Carolina, the town he was in was a small town. It was still segregated. I mean, completely segregated. He talks about living in the black section of town. Um, it was an all-white jury, white prosecutor, white survivor. He's a black kid. He he had no chance. And they just saw somebody black and were like, "Let's get him. We got him." You know, they didn't they didn't care. That case that case is so disgusting. The blatant disregard for. I, I mean, when you hear the episode, you're just going to be like, "Wow."
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, and you said that he's the one that was released on Thursday of last week. Mhm. Okay. And are you you're going to have follow-up uh, conversations and and maybe a follow-up interview that's going to be uh part of season 1? I'm
2: going to get him on Skype um with his wife Ashley who who's amazing and she's if it wasn't for her I don't think he would even be where he is. Um she really she came on about 7 years ago and just has been a crusader for him. Um but you know besides and and race is always a factor um but wealth, I mean, almost everyone I've spoken to is some kind of marginalized person. Um, you know, one of the guys was living in a trail, he's a white guy, but he was in the trailer park and they just, you know, found this trailer park kid and we're like, oh, it's going to be him. Like we saw with the West Memphis three. I mean, it's always somebody who is marginalized and who doesn't have resources I'd say David Thorne is the outlier in that he did, he did have a lawyer almost right away. And that's why his case, he's the one who they found the the quote co-conspirator. I mean, that one, it's just beyond frustrating to me. He, he was a person who was doing well for himself. He had a kid. He was trying to rekindle with the ex that got murdered. I mean, that one, that one kind of defies all, everything i've said to you so far it just defies it i mean it's just mind blowing
1: it's uh, interesting to have that be a part of your season because you can see how it typically is and then you can see well there are outliers and you have to sort of consider everything when you're when you're um taking part in this even when you're taking part in this he did listening.
2: everything right i mean his grandfather immediately had him a lawyer he he only spoke with the police one time with a lawyer and that was it they didn't they couldn't you know he had a lawyer the lawyer was like get don't speak to him And just the way they concocted this entire, it just, it's my, it's really mine. It's so frustrating. Mm -hmm. It could happen to any single one of us. And that's what I find every time I talk to these advocates. I'm like, why are you dedicating your life to doing this? You have a job. What are you doing? Doing like unpaid work. And uh, that came off really like, hold on. I don't know. We can put that in um not not to like condescend on <laughs> paid work the money yeah no not to condescend on paid work in any way but it's like a serious question like what are like what makes you so invested in something like we see it with the Maura Murray case what makes you so invested in something when you're not a relative you know you're not getting paid to do it something like that and and it's always because in these cases it's because it could happen to me it could happen to anyone and it is so so terrifying and the system is created that it's supposed to be reasonable doubt and, you know, innocent and p- until proven guilty. And when that fails and you're convicted, there's it is so, so hard.
1: Well, you are certainly fighting a crusade. Um, when is this uh, wonderful crusade
0: premiering?
2: September 10th. There's two episodes on September 10th.
0: Cannot wait. And I'm also interested in knowing how uh, people who get out of prison um, after having been wrongfully convicted live, you know, how they, how they deal with uh, that sudden change.
2: I mean, talking to people who, you know, that I know who have gotten out of prison in general, I mean, there is no, <laughs> the system, again, is not set up for you to get out of prison. So there's no, there, there is very minimal help for you to, um, to reintegrate, to integrate back into society. And that's the saddest part is with so many people not talking wrongful convictions, but just people coming out of prison. That's why we see recidivism. You have to pay for parole. I mean, you, you pay your dues. I mean, these people coming out who might not even have jobs. I mean, it's just, the recidivism, not because somebody is a bad person, but because somebody is a desperate person, they might steal something. They're out of prison. They, their job, the whole, you know, the job they thought they were going to have fell through. Someone sees you're, a, you know, maybe not even a felon, but just have a rap sheet. They don't want to hire you. I mean, it is so difficult. I think with these wrongful conviction cases, they're in a better position because they have these family members. I mean, you're not getting out unless someone's fighting for you. So, so they have people on their side who are there for them to fight for them. I mean, if you just look at the Stephen Avery, I mean, he has a million people, you know, fighting for him. He has a support system if and when he gets out. He had it the first time. So, I mean, it's, it's tough for sure. And I can't speak for them, but I do ask them. But in terms of, you know, having some kind of system set up for you, that doesn't exist.
1: That's really unfortunate because what they fall back on, like you said, is, um, you know, maybe they'll steal something because they just need to go back to what they've always known. And this is not what they've known. And if you've been in prison for 40 something years, it's easier to exist in prison than it is to exist in the, uh, you know, the, the civilian world.
2: Well, that's that's what my whole other podcast is about. And you can hear this man tell his story. I mean, he says that he's like, this is the most difficult living in this world He was locked up in 1986, learning how to use, uh, you know, bones, learning how to eat. This is something you don't realize when you're in prison. You don't have forks. Everything is a spoon because forks are sharp. Um, He eats all of his food with a spoon. And that was just like one of these struggles. He was like, I go out and I don't know how to use a fork. Like... These things you don't even think of. Like, reintegration isn't just jobs and having a place to live. I mean, there are, being conditioned to a prison lifestyle is really, really traumatic.